Hello, and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series. We're solidly into our second year. Hope you've enjoyed the first year of all of our interviews. By now, you probably know I'm Scott Miller, and I'm honored each week to serve as your host and interviewer. However, today, we're going to actually switch things up because I've been invited by myself as the host, to be today's actual guest because my new book, Management Mess to Leadership Success, is on sale now. So I've invited our chief people officer, best-selling author, my dear friend, and several-time guest on this series, Todd Davis, to serve as the host. Todd, welcome to your program. Thanks. Let's hot. switch seats <laughs> because kind of like Johnny Carson turned it over to Joan Rivers yeah. in that monumental interview. Yeah. That didn't go so well. That didn't end up well. But, but yeah, we'll do that. We'll do Let's that. switch and you okay. become the interviewer <laughs> right. and I'll be the interviewee. All right. Well, I do appreciate being Whoop. asked to be your first co-host, I think. Yeah. Yeah, anybody who's old enough to remember uh, Johnny Carson, Joan Rivers, he did ask her to co-host and then for the remainder of their friendship, there was no friendship. They right. They went poorly. So let's hope that's not I'll, I'll bet that our 23 years will withstand uh, my pettiness. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, excited to be here. Uh, let's just jump right into your new book, Management Mess to Leadership Success. This is pretty exciting. Very exciting, Launches yeah. officially in June? Yeah, June 18th. Okay. That's right. You're going to be busy. I am busy. Yeah. yeah. Huge book tour, I think, planned with I'm this. actually building on your heels. Your book launched almost two years ago. Mm -hmm. I've taken a lot of the lessons and insight from you. Your book's right up here, Get Better, and I'm doing a lot of the same things that, that came your way, so I feel super honored. Well, we're, we're excited that you wrote this. Tell, tell us, on that note, what, what prompted this? What led to, to you writing this book? Yeah. I, you know, when I interviewed Stephen M. R. Covey, who I think was our first or second interview in this series, he sat mm -hmm. in this chair. Mm -hmm. I sat there. And I asked him what it was like to be under the shadow of his father, Dr. Stephen R. Covey. Although my father's great, he's not famous, and hasn't authored a book, I could relate to some things he said. And he said, you know, I didn't write because I had nothing unique to say. I hadn't found my voice yet. He was the CEO of a company, well-educated, and CEO of our company for some mm -hmm. time. And Stephen said, and then one day I realized I had something to say. So I wrote the book, The Speed of Trust, and it sold two million copies. I'm not sure mine will sell two million copies. Oh, but, know. you know, I hit a certain inflection point and I said, you know, I also have something to say. After 25 years in this business between Franklin Covey and the Disney company and some le different leadership roles, I realized that I had a leadership voice that I thought was unique enough to share. Okay. That my style is that a bit of an unfiltered leader, uh, life full of messes that I was willing to share. And I wanted to kind of make it safe for people to know, you know what, own your mess move it to success, <laughs> but be proud and be comfortable with your vulnerability of admitting what you've done wrong and that you're on a path like we all are because nobody's a complete mess and no one's a solid success. Everybody's sort of moving, hopefully, towards success. Success. With that, tell us a little bit more about your leadership journey. So, so what Rocky. you're saying is you... <laughs> Rocky? <laughs> Rocky. You, you weren't born a great leader. I don't think anyone was born a great leader. Okay. I think that's a misnomer. I think maybe someone was, Napoleon, I don't were know. You in, I mean, were you in leadership roles at an early age, in school? And, you know, I, I was. You know, mm -hmm. I was student body president in high school and, and, and things like that. And what I realized was the talents that I thought were leadership talents, loud voice. <laughs> you? I got a master in spades. <laughs> Charisma. The host is supposed to be inviting and gracious, not hostile, okay? Yeah. Don't, don't invite a host who knows you so well. <laughs> Would you Larry King me? Make it okay. easy, okay? But no, truly, when I was younger, in my teens and early 20s, I thought leadership was boldness and, and some swagger and charisma mm -hmm. and, and sellability. And perhaps that's true in some leadership roles, but what I realized in organizations, 
that leadership isn't those things. Great leaders can be bold, and great leaders can have charisma, but they're not leadership competencies. Leadership competencies are personal trustworthiness, and empathy, and focus, discipline, making good decisions, modeling high character and high competence, apologizing, humility. These are things I didn't associate with leadership early in my career, so I had a pretty rocky first 15, 20 years in leadership roles at restaurants, and leadership roles in part-time jobs. Then when I actually joined a corporate culture at Disney, mm -hmm. I was a mess. Mm -hmm. I wasn't a formal leader there, or maybe some you know, more junior people reporting to me. I learned I needed a whole new tool set. I didn't have it, so when I joined the Covey Leadership Center, I got more tools than I needed, in my, my 20, almost three-year journey here, I've got a lot of messes and a couple of successes, but I think that I've learned a lot around what leaders do, and I think these 30 challenges are crucial. If you can master these challenges, you'll be 95% you know, towards leadership success. Okay, that's, that's very interesting. In your, in your career here, we both joined about a similar time yeah. uh, 23 years ago, lots of learnings. You write about lots of messes and successes. What would you, and maybe this is, isn't easy to do, what would you single out as, your, as your, your most important learning about great leaders? Uh, or, or one or two? Yeah, well, I, I, I've become you know, convicted that character is the most important trait. Although I don't mention character as one of the 30 I challenges. At the end of the book. I yeah. write it in chapter about how solid yeah. it is. Joel Peterson, who's on our board and the mm -hmm. chairman of JetBlue, professor at Stanford, talks about how character is your ticket to the game. Mm -hmm. you, don't, you, don't, you don't get to count it. It just it is or it's not. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have it, you're out. Mm -hmm. So I'm reminded that what you do when you're watched, what you do when you're not watched, is your character, and it's why people will choose to respect and follow you. You won't always be loved as a leader. You won't always be liked. People will disagree with you. I have a whole list of detractors that I also hope respect my character because I've worked hard to keep it strong. So, so biggest learning is that character is foundational. Yeah. I mean, you, yeah, right. In any role, really, yeah. specifically for a leader. Yeah. Okay. What? What else? What? What would be another? Again, realize there are a lot, but what would be another towards the top? That boy, yeah, if you I, don't have this, I think it's the decisions you make. One mm. of the challenges mm. is making high value decisions. What I've learned here, or come to believe, is that you know, your reputation is your most valuable asset in life. For those who are religious, maybe it's your soul, but mm. you know, your 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 physical things, your reputation is your brand. And it really is a function of all the decisions you make, what you decide to say, what you decide not to say, what you decide to say yes to and no to, what you fund, what you don't fund, how you spend your time. So the thousands of decisions we make every day form our reputation. And I think influential, trusted, respected, impactful leaders are very deliberate in everything they do and say but they're also deliberate in the decisions they make, including do I say yes to this meeting or yes to that meeting? They're very mm -hmm. conscious of making sure their time and their talent is being dedicated to the highest impact initiatives. I've struggled all my life with taking on too much, you know, getting kind of you know, caught in the thick of thin things. I like to be busy and productive. Why, what, interesting. What, what, what do you think prompts that? Because I know a lot of people that do that. Yeah. What, what do you think is behind that? Well, I think when we grew up, and I'm a little younger than you, not much younger. A lot younger. <laughs> I think there was a moniker that busy was important. Mm -hmm. That busy was you know, a flurry of activity, kind of pig pen, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I think as in the last maybe half decade, it's been less appealing, less attractive. I'm sure it was something that was imprinted to me early on. 
parents, teachers, a priest. A, I don't know so what. You always say yes to everything. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I think I like to be busy. I don't like to be bored or... I was reading just yesterday in an interview that I conducted with somebody else on the radio program that uh, anxious people aren't necessarily productive people. You can be calm. Aren't necessarily productive Productive, oh, Right. Okay. You can be calm and still be productive. And I've always had a, sort of a high-energy personality, and so I'm still trying to move towards success and finding congruence with my boundless energy, mm -hmm. my ability to do and be interested in lots of things at the same time, and focusing on making better decisions on what to say yes to and what to say no to. It's a challenge okay. for me. I think yeah. it's an important leadership competency, though. Really, very insightful. Uh, let's talk about some of the challenges. Yeah. You've been very generous in, in, and vulnerable in sharing yeah. your, some of the messes that we've all learned from our own messes along the way. But let's, let's talk about a, a, a couple of these. What, which ones, which ones we don't, I wish we could talk about all 30, but we can't. So yeah. talk about a few that come to mind. So there are 30, and they're organized kind of into three tranches. The okay. first eight or so are really about leading yourself. Mm -hmm. And the next half dozen, or actually probably about eight or nine, are also around leading others. And then the last dozen or so are really around getting results. So let's start with one leading yourself. Yeah, great. I think uh, this idea of declaring intent, challenge four, is so important to leaders because, you know, when I was in college, a, a famous PR professor told me that absent facts, people make stuff up. Mm -hmm. It's a good sort of adage mm -hmm. in advertising, right, or in a leadership role or in politics, mm -hmm. that if, if you don't state your position, someone will make one up and describe it to you, take you down. And I think in everyday life and leadership, if you don't clarify your intentions, clarify your intent, people will be suspicious. People will guess, or they'll just ascribe an intent to you. So I'm pretty impassioned, passionate about making sure in my leadership role and in my relationships that I go into every conversation, or at least most of them, making sure someone knows what my end in mind is, or what my true intent is. We all have hidden agendas, including me. And one of the best ways... <laughs> What's yours right now? <laughs> <laughs> to suffer through your interview. <laughs> okay. No, this is interesting. I just want to ask, so are you saying that if we don't declare our intent, officially declare it, people assume the worst in everyone? Not assume the worst, but they can fill in the blanks. Right. And they can use their own narrative, their own paradigm, their own experience to say, well, the last time I was with my meter, my, meet, my, my leader, mm -hmm. when I met, he said this, but he really meant that. So I'm guessing Scott does too. So I think our fields of experience inform our narrative on what's not said. Okay. Here's, well, a, good, here's a good example. Okay. You know, when you're having a high courage conversation with someone, you can go in and say, Todd, if you don't change, you're going to be out. And now you're pretty clear. You've got a target on your back. Versus I could say, Todd, I can see a great career here for you in the organization. I can see it. But if you don't change some behaviors, you're going to probably be exited. The difference is, I've said to you, my intent is to keep you in the organization. But if you can't change, you're going to have to leave. And I think just some minor nuances mm -hmm. there can make all mm -hmm. the difference in someone else not kind of guessing or making mm -hmm. up what's really going on in Scott's mind. That's very interesting. You've got me thinking, when you referred earlier to character being such a critical foundation, that if you, if you have this history of having high character, then people maybe don't assume something they shouldn't. If they've seen you be pretty true. I and, think that's mm -hmm. true. I don't know about mm -hmm. you, but how often are you meeting people that you don't have a reputation with? Right. right? At dinner parties, at right. conferences, no at events, history. clients, they have mm -hmm. no history, so they have no idea. And they're, and they're looking at my body language. They're looking at my rate of speech, how I'm dressed, what I think, what I say. 
And if you declare your intent, then you can be much more, I think, empathic with each other on, mm -hmm. well, he said this is intent, so I may mm -hmm. well trust that. Great example. Let's do one more on leading yourself. What's another one you would highlight? Yeah, I think, um, listen first. So I'm pretty passionate about how poor my messes are around this. I make no bones around how this is a really tough leadership skill for me. I, I've learned a couple of things along my you know, nearly 30 years of working now, and that is leaders like me and you probably have days if not weeks of leadership training that include how to communicate better, how to speak more persuasively, how to influence, how to master the stage, mm -hmm. the microphone, PowerPoint, keynote. I only have a couple of hours of listening and it came from the seven habits, right? Habit five. Mm -hmm. I don't think most leaders really view listening as a leadership skill. When in fact, it is a fundamental leadership skill because it's kind of the essence behind empathy. You hear a lot about empathy right now. How do I get it? How do I learn it? How do I demonstrate it? And I think people can learn empathy, but one of the ways to manifest greater empathy in you as a leader is to listen more. Listening is a communication skill. You're just not talking, you're listening. Mm -hmm. Seems simple, but it's you know, quite profound. And Dr. Covey, I think, is probably one of the biggest, most prolific writers, speakers, champions on the value of listening and the role it plays in relationships. And I write in the book, I co-opt some of Dr. Covey's content, I give him credit, about how when most of us are listening, we have our own narrative in our mind, and we're probing with our questions, and we're interpreting, and we're digging for more information. And it's quite natural to us because most of us listen on our timeline and on our agenda. It's quite selfish. Why, why do we do that? Why? Besides the fact that, to your point, we don't have a lot of uh, formal training yeah. in, in listening, yeah. why do we naturally, because as you share that, I think we all, I do that, we all do yeah. that. Why do we do that? I'm sure it's been enculturated in us since birth. We see it from our teachers and our parents and our neighbors. Mm -hmm. I think we all have a desire to be heard and, and, and valued. Mm -hmm. I think we also have a, our own fields of experience that, that uh, germinate in us a need to want to help people. So we naturally think, well, I want to solve the person's problem. I want to help mitigate their pain. I want to share my insight with them. It comes it, from a good place. I think it does come from a good place, mm -hmm. but it's misplaced. And that great leaders, great friends, great parents and spouses are more deliberate with their communication skills and they move out of their own agenda and their own timeline and they really listen. It sounds hokey, but it's so valuable with their heart and their ears and their mind and their eyes to really understand what the other person is saying. Mm -hmm. And it just, if you were to practice the skill of whenever you ask someone else a question, are you on your timeline or are you on theirs? Do you need to know that to help them or to help yourself? I share an example in the book that comes from Judy Henricks, our mutual friend and mm -hmm, colleague, mm -hmm. where she shares an example of this concept where someone's dog dies. And we, we talk about this, mm -hmm, right? And mm -hmm. it's a great story. When someone, asks, if someone says, my dog dies, your first tendency is kind of macabre. How? Yeah, right? Did what it, happened? Did it get hit yeah. by a car? Did it get mauled by a, you know, mm -hmm. a wolf? Or mm -hmm. did it just die of old age? And who cares how the person's dog died? It's not relevant to their pain. The fact of the matter is their dog died, and it might have been... You know, a good thing or a bad thing. It might have been a tragic thing or a peaceful mm -hmm. thing, right? It may have just been the dog lived 24 mm -hmm. years and it was, and so I share a great example of how to catch yourself when you're asking probing questions or evaluating questions 
to make sure that if you're ever asking any questions, they're really about clarifying information that's important for you to know so that you can be more empathic to the person. And it's mm -hmm. actually rare. And I just for one more minute, I also share a lot about the role interrupting plays in our relationships as listeners because we're natural interrupters because we are, I think, <laughs> and I, I mean you and me, mm -hmm. I mean, just you. Uh, I think that there's this tendency. Well, let that, me tell you right now. What I'm there's a, a tendency to help other people, and if we can kind of speed it up and move it along, we're all on kind of you know timelines. Get to and, the solution quicker. Yeah, and yeah. I have to quote Deborah Tannen, the famous linguistics. Mm -hmm. I have my own theory of how long you should be talking, and you have a theory of how long I should be talking, mm -hmm. right? And so I will choose to interrupt you once I think you should be done, and it's not conscious; it's kind of subconscious. But the more we're mindful of getting off of our timeline, then I don't care how long you talk because I'm on your timeline and however long it takes is just fine with me. Mm -hmm. And I give some valuable tips on how you can actually physically stop or lessen your interrupting. I think it's a really important skill that I quite frankly suck at. So I spend a disproportionate amount of time in the book talking about what a mess I am so that others can hopefully avoid that pitfall and move to success. So j just on that before we move off of it, you, you say this is one of the more difficult ones for you. What are you doing, what do you do to specifically to, to be improving in this? Well, there's two yeah. things. Okay. From, from writing the book, I'm much more mindful of understanding why am I asking this question. In nine and a half times out of 10, it's because I'm curious. So I have lessened my more selfish questions with people. I haven't eliminated them, mm -hmm. but I'm much more mindful when I'm asking a question in a high stakes conversation mm -hmm. or in any kind of relationship. Now, business is different, right? Because my job is to uncover problems and get mm -hmm. to the root. Mm -hmm. So in a yeah, business meeting, there. I'm probably asking more mm -hmm. piercing questions to make sure we know all the facts. Mm -hmm. In a non-business conversation, I am more aware of are my questions serving me or serving them. Secondly, I am consciously trying not to interrupt by gently putting my lips together. Because when your lips are together, <laughs> well, there's an idea. <laughs> you can't form a word. Mm -hmm. That's what I learned from Deborah Tannen, mm -hmm. is that there is one crutch. If you want to limit your interrupting, like you're doing right now, just gently put your lips together, not like purse them, and just stop talking. And when the other person you think is pausing, keep your lips together. Count to five, seven, ten. And the longer you don't talk, the likely the other person will keep talking and maybe even disclose something that's you know, personal or important at that point is remarkable. You'll mm -hmm. see the, the dynamic change immediately if you can resist the need to jump in, one up, tell a better story, or even relate to them. Just be quiet. Let them share what's on their mind. Great advice. So hard. Yeah. I'm horrible at it. Well, I think a lot of people, are it's tough for them. I think you're hard on yourself. I don't know that you're horrible. <laughs> All right, so leading yourself. Let's go to the next section, yes. leading others. Yeah, so I think uh, this concept of uh, making it safe to tell the truth. And you write about this in your book mm -hmm. as well. It's, it's a concept you and I are both really passionate My about. My attorneys are contacting your attorneys <laughs> right now. <laughs> I, uh, I'm really passionate about the role that feedback plays in our lives. Mm -hmm. I think the most influential people have high self-awareness. And I think the best way you get self-aware is you have trusted people in your life that tell you what it's like to be your friend, Scott. What's it like to be out at dinner 
at a, at a, at a, at a, you know, a dinner date with you, with your wife, mm -hmm. with your or friends. Or on your team. Or What's it like in, yeah. to be in a meeting? Mm -hmm. What's it like to be in a project with you? And you can guess your own narrative, but it's like seeing a video of yourself. You're like, oh my gosh, I said that, I did that. And no, having someone else tell you what it's like to be in your life is sobering. So make it safe to tell the truth is all around creating an environment in your personal life, in your professional life for trusted people to tell you the truth about you. It might be about your bullying tactics or how much you talk or your breath or your personal hygiene, <laughs> any number of things. I did want to talk to you after. I know, well you have and, and it's less garlic. And I, I don't mean it to be comical, but I mean mm -hmm. it, uh, it to be instructive that when you make it safe for someone else to give you feedback, you make it safe for them to tell you their truth. Because if I were to ask you, Todd, did you read my book? You're probably gonna say, yeah, it's great, I loved it. When in mind that may, it may be true. What also might be true is you might have found 17 spelling errors, right? Or I might not mm. have credited someone. Or you might have thought, you know what? These things, things seem out of the order or such. But if I make it genuinely comfortable with no retribution, no risk for you to say, Scott, can I tell you? I found a lot of spelling errors. Let's make, I mean, that's gonna hurt me, but it's gonna help me. So I think that receiving feedback is in fact more about the receiver than it is the giver. I have got to make it comfortable for you through my invitation, my reputation, my body language, my lack of defense. You know, whenever you, when you, you say, Scott, your breast smells, I say, no, it doesn't. Mm -hmm. You're like, okay, well, I'm not going there again, <laughs> right? Yes, it does, mm -hmm. and not going there again. So I think it's just enormously important that if you wanna be self-aware, and you want feedback from people, you have to take the responsibility on yourself and not just hope that they're gonna share with you what might be a high courage, straight talk conversation, because most people won't, especially with your boss. Because the higher you are up in the organization, I guarantee you there's an inverse correlation in the amount of truth you're getting about your leadership, your legacy, mm -hmm. your reputation, mm -hmm. the pipeline, mm -hmm. turnover, clients, right? People will protect you from the truth unless you really make it brutally safe not to lie. So again, very interesting. How would you coach someone then on, you know, if someone's got spelling errors in a book they wrote, yeah. or even if, if their breath is bad, those are, while, while those sting a little bit, they're kind of true or not. Less black and white are, Scott, you, you don't, let anybody else talk in the meeting. Right, you, right. You, you know, you, and I'm just sharing what you said, you know, sometimes I talk too loud or I, I get right. too passionate. And, and, and how do you resist, I'm asking you, how do you resist or how would you advise me to resist saying, well, no, that's just Todd's opinion. I'm, I'm not gonna change anything. How, yeah. Do, yeah, how do you yeah, get over I, your big self? I think <laughs> I'm actually really great at soliciting feedback mm -hmm. and making it safe for people to tell me that. I think I'm pretty poor. In fact, I'm a mess at implementing it. And I get to bring better congruency to those. And I know that. I think there's a couple things I've learned, is you can have too much feedback. Mm -hmm. So you should be deliberate about who you're requesting it from. Not just your unabashed champions and not your most you know, vitriolic detractors, but pick a couple of trusted people who are wise, perhaps even more seasoned than you are, that are pretty well holistic thinkers and they know you fairly well. They don't need your validation. They don't, to, that's right, yeah. right. Mm -hmm. and, and they generally, believe that you want the feedback mm -hmm. and you're generally interested in hearing it, you know mm -hmm. it might be tough. And it could be people who, who, who you don't think are fawning all over you, right? right. I, I can think right. of someone in this company who I don't think really likes me, but I think they would like to help me. I don't particularly like them, 
-hmm. but I think they could help me. Is, is it me? No. Okay. And that person <laughs> is in my feedback loop. Mm -hmm. And I've also learned that when someone gives me the feedback, I have got to resist the urge of defending myself. Yeah. Because I yeah. feel so insecure and well, there's more to this story and you didn't know what happened. Mm -hmm. And because then I just neuter their desire to come back. It's like they didn't really want, Scott, you didn't really want the feedback. Right. So I think I'm getting better at that. And I also think it's the most important challenge I face on feedback is then asking some clarifying questions. When did I do that? What, what, what was going on, do you think? And then go out and actually try to change it. The behavior. Because, that's right, because if mm -hmm. you see me being less dominant in meetings, you're more likely to come to me and say, hey Scott, I see another opportunity where you could expand your influence significantly if you were to come to meetings more punctually. You kind of always come in two minutes late, and you're, I know you're really busy, but it kind of disrupts the agenda. I want you to really try to come in a minute early and see what happens. Mm. And then I go do that. And then the next month, not every, not every day, right? right? But the next month, and now I've got a champion who's seeing me change, and now you're my evangelist. You're my ambassador. Because when mm. someone trash talks me to you, you're gonna say, Here's actually, I gotta tell you, I've yeah. seen this and this, and Scott's quite open to it. That's great advice. One more thought on feedback. Not all feedback's helpful. So you have to make sure that the more you receive feedback, the more wise you are around what to take and what to not take. Because sometimes people's feedback is about their relationship with their boss or what they wish mm -hmm. for them, not for you. Mm -hmm. So with enough practice, you'll start to realize what's helpful, what's not helpful. I tend to err on too much feedback as I, as I ask for it a lot. And I have learned, like Todd Music, one of my colleagues, if Todd Music gives me some feedback, I know his intention is to help me. He feels generally high trust. He knows that I might have a little bit of a flash response, but I'll call back a half hour later and say, okay, I've calmed down. Let's talk about it again. And I usually implement 90% of what he tells me because I know where his intentions are. And I also feel like he's my champion and my evangelist. And I've got a half dozen of those in my life that are carefully curated because they've got my back. So if I want to give you some feedback, I should call him and tell him to give you the feedback. <laughs> or Colleen Dom, right? Or Bob Whitman. Yeah, yeah I've lots okay. of, yeah. All right, great. Yeah. Great example of, of, of leading others. The last section then is leading your team. Get results. Yeah. The last section. Okay. Yeah. Give us just a hide out of that. Yeah, you know, I think create vision. It's challenge 22. Mm -hmm. it, if you're all like me, we know people who are great visionaries. Lots of energy and can paint a big picture and too few of them can bring it to fruition. Too few of them can roll up their sleeves and close the door. All they Ma want to do is talk vision. That's vision, right, vision. Okay. yeah. I mean, I'll, a colleague of mine, Matt Murdock, I'll call him out. Mm -hmm. The guy's got vision, but the guy's one of the most disciplined people mm -hmm. I know. He will close his door, and he and will be at his laptop for four hours and come out with like the email template or the website, mm -hmm. right? I couldn't code to save my life, but the guy's mm -hmm. very disciplined. And so I think it's rare that you find that in, bo that in both the people. The balance of both the vision That's and exactly the right. execution. Of so I think create vision isn't just about being visionary. It's can you then see it through? Can you hold people accountable? Can you mm. keep recommitting to it? You know, Walt Disney was arguably one of the best visionaries in the world. Because here's a great example. Walt Disney, Disney back when he lived in the 50s and 60s, had this idea for this sort of futuristic community where people lived and worked and played. And after he died, the Disney company built Epcot, mm -hmm. the experimental mm -hmm. prototype community of tomorrow. No one lived there. It's a theme park. It was cool, you know, international pavilions and technology and things. 
And then in the 90s, like literally 35 years after Disney died, the Disney company built this town of celebration. Mm -hmm. I was on that project for almost four years. And celebration really was the manifestation of Walt Disney's idea of what Epcot was supposed to be. And this is 35 years later, he died. Talk about a guy that built not just a vision, but systems and an enduring legacy that people long after him, almost four on. decades, yeah. brought it to life. So I think visionary qualities and leaders are more than just being able to be bold and progressive and be a, a, um, you know, a trend identifier, but you have to be able to communicate that vision and transfer it into people's heads so that they don't just get it. They go and build it 30 years after you die. That's a visionary leader. Great story, great story. What uh, the leaders that you've worked for or worked with, what, what are, what's the single most or maybe the couple most common mistakes you see them make that really deplete yeah. their influence? Yeah, I, I know this immediately. Liz Wiseman, one of my all-time favorite authors, wrote a book, She's Multipliers. She, I, I talked to her this yeah. morning, actually. Uh, in fact, I think it's one of the best leadership books ever written, including ours. Yeah, it's a great book. Liz wrote a book called Multipliers. It's all about this premise of, are you multiplying talent or are you accidentally diminishing talent? She doesn't think most of us are purposeful diminishers. Mm -hmm. We're accidental diminishers mm -hmm. because we have this need to be the smartest person in the room. When you're a leader, again, you're trained to communicate and persuade and influence, but you're also trained to have all the answers and you're probably often paid the most, so you have the most responsibility. The buck stops with you. And I think Liz challenged my paradigm, and I think it's the big mistake people make, which is they walk into a room with the idea that they are the genius versus the genius maker. Mm -hmm. And it takes a humble leader, someone who's very secure with himself, to hire people around them that are smarter than they are. And I, and I have a mess around this, right? I mean, just even two years ago, I had someone who was a highly technically competent digital designer, coder, UX colleague. And, and I think I was smarter in some areas, he was smarter in some areas, but I really had to grow to appreciate his wisdom in the room because I wasn't the smartest person in the room. And we, we kind of, you know, sometimes got sideways with each other and I wish him well and I hope he wishes me well too. I'm sure he does. But I wasn't a genius maker. I had a need to be the genius. There was a joke in marketing for years, best idea wins, mm -hmm. as long as it's Scott's. <laughs> and I think I defended that because, you know what? The buck stops with me. The board and the chairman aren't going to let me blame the outcome on one of my team members, so I have to agree with it. It has to be ultimately my idea because I'm not going to sell you out. And I think I was half right. Mm -hmm. I think I was half wrong. Mm -hmm. Is too many leaders feel the need to have the answer, have it their way, own it, when in fact they need to be more comfortable and realize their number one job is recruiting and retaining key talent, and placing it throughout the organization, that's your sign of success. So I'd say read Liz Wiseman's book and really figure out how you can become not just the genius, but the genius maker of others. Oh, well, you remind me, I think it is your number one, maybe it's the number two challenge, demonstrate humility. Number one. Yeah, that's is that, right. Sounds like that's why this is the... That's the well, it's actually that. not. It's, I was interviewing Karen Dillon, who is the former editor of the Harvard Business mm -hmm. Review and the co-author of the book, How Will You Measure Your Life? Mm -hmm. And in her book with Clayton Christensen, she talked about a concept that seemed counterintuitive to me. She said, humble people are confident people. Confidence comes from humility. 
not from arrogance, that it's the most confident people that are actually the most humble people because they don't have to be right about everything. They know who they are. They know what their weaknesses and messes are. They're kind of okay with that. And they're so humble that they go out and find talent around them to fill in all the gaps. And they're just fine with that. They see themselves as the genius maker. So I think it was a combination of Karen and Liz's idea together yeah. that made me realize I suck at humility. It is a mess. And um, it's something that is fundamental to being a great leader is are you comfortable enough not to always be the smartest person in the room? It's a combination of both those. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great insight. Okay. I'm learning a lot. <laughs> as am I. <laughs> last, last minute. Yeah. Uh, and I'd like to end with, as you and everybody has a different time frame, but back when you were 20 years old, 18, 19, when you were getting into the career world, right. the business world, not just a temporary job, what would you go back now? What advice would you give that, that young Scott Miller that you know now that you didn't know then? Lord have mercy. Pay your parking tickets. Pay your speeding tickets. <laughs> More on that You let later. those pile up. <laughs> well, I yeah. hope my daughter's listening right now. Yeah, the law found me. <laughs> uh, what advice yeah, would if I you give? Could, thinking in 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 this uh, realm of leadership, what's what's one thing that you thought? Gosh, I, uh, you know, I've learned this along the way, and it, boy, it would help others that are listening or watching to know that. You know, I think I did something well that I could have done better. Okay, and that is, I have a concept of called friend up, and early in my teens. I was friending up. I was being friends with people that were much more educated than me, well-traveled, successful, mm -hmm. older, people I could learn from. I was always friending people that were older than me, like by generations. Mm -hmm. And I learned a lot from them, but I don't think I implemented it. Like I learned concepts. Kind of like what you said with feedback. I, I'm really good at asking yeah, for feedback. I'm good at then... synthesizing, but to quote our mutual friend, Colleen Dom, mm -hmm. I love this phrase she says, oh, I fully understand the principle I have just yet to adopt it into my life. <laughs> and I think that's so refreshing for Colleen to say because, I mean, look around. I've read yeah. a few things, interviewed right. a few people, and I need to do a better job and needed to then to maybe assimilate less and take a couple of key concepts and make them my brand, like listening or high-value decisions or being more effective than efficient. Okay. I think that probably is it. As I, I stumble upon it, I think I have a very efficient mindset I treat people like I treat raking the yard. It's a task, get it done, check it off, and move on. And I think my biggest learning that I would say to my previous self would probably be, with people, this famous phrase from Dr. Covey, with people, slow is fast, and fast is slow. And I need to compartmentalize what can be done quick and what should be done slow. Yeah. And that's tough for me, still. Great advice. Thank you so much. I, again, you're, you're very open and transparent, and I don't know anybody in my world that hasn't been listening and identifying with some of the same messes that they've caused. So you're, you're well, there's not, a you're lot not of them the are still one. messes. Yeah. Well, yeah. thank you for joining me on your show. Thanks, Todd. <laughs> thank you. And thank you for joining us. And uh, we look forward to you joining us next week when Scott Miller will again be your host, and we'll have another exciting guest. Thank you very much.